Welcome to the Turnaround Mindset Podcast with your hosts, behavioural economist and psychologist Phil Slade and successful business leader and accountant Adam Smith. Each week, our hosts will unpack the tough and intimate questions we all face as professionals, offering no-nonsense business advice to those bold enough to think and act differently. Now, here are your hosts, Phil and Adam. Get ready to be inspired, to laugh out loud, and to learn what it takes to make long-lasting change. Today, we speak with the incredible Dr. Gemma Munro. Gemma is a thought leader, a transformational facilitator, and award-winning speaker with a PhD in performance psychology. Winner of the Duncan Prize for speaking and a two-time Telstra Businesswoman of the Year finalist, today is an episode where Phil is in such awe of our amazing guest that you will witness him giggling like a schoolgirl. Dr. Gemma has spoken to audiences at Google, Amazon, PayPal, Qantas, Vodafone, and the NHS in London. Her keynote at Google headquarters in Silicon Valley was live streamed to every Google office on the planet. She co-founded Inkling Group, an organization that works with forward-thinking companies across the globe to elevate collective and individual leadership, build and empower diverse teams, and turn organizations into the best places to work. Gemma is also the founder of Inkling Women, designed to equip women with the skills and courage to challenge the status quo, uncover their strengths, and lift self-awareness. Inkling Women is known for its work across Australia, Asia, and the UK in rapidly lifting the percentage of women at a leadership level. As a classically trained singer, Gemma has performed in Westminster Abbey, Radio City Music Hall, and, if you can believe it, to 53,000 screaming fans as a backing vocalist for the Rolling Stones. Gemma's story of how she has overcome her own internal demons, developed a growth mindset, and inspired thousands of people to be the best versions of themselves is awesome. So let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Gemma Munro. Gemma, thank you for joining us today at the Turnaround Mindset podcast. Gemma's background that sort of takes us through transformation facilitation, but at the same time, comes from a degree perspective with a PhD in performance psychology. So Phil's going to have a lot of fun today. I'm looking forward to this more than you can know. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Gemma, I think there's so much to discuss. It would be fantastic just to get an understanding about who you are and almost where and how you ended up where you are now in transformational facilitation with leaders all over the world it'd be great to sort of get your perspective on on what's uh what lead what led you here i will try to give you the reader's digest version because i think if you track anyone's career it's a series of pivot points and i've I've had that through my life and career but reader's digest version is i was always fascinated by performance and particularly how you could be who you are through performing your work So I did a PhD in performance psychology, um, having had a background in musical performance for many years. Uh, And I realized very quickly when I was doing my PhD that the psychologists I was working with, bless them, it was like an exercise of navel gazing where they weren't just gazing at their own navels, they were gazing at each other's navels going, my navel's better than yours. Like it was this competitive, (laughs) non-real, non-practical form of psychology. Um, And I thought, no, I don't want a bar of this. So of all things, I went into executive recruitment 
And um, my boss at the time said, oh, we're doing this rebrand. You should look at this organization. And it was called NAUS, the NAUS group. And I looked at the organization about their brand. I went, I want to do that for a living. So I found myself doing Salesforce effectiveness and organizational redesign and being this tremendously serious management consultant. And, and again, in a very competitive kind of environment and working 17 hour days. And after seven years of doing that and learning a ton um, and, and doing a lot of work in change. And within that time, um, I realized I really want to be in leadership and, and people development. So I asked my boss to move to that. And I did. Within that time when I was working there, my daughter was given a 40% chance of surviving in the womb. And every week we had 20 weeks of not knowing if she was going to make it or not. And every ultrasound was, is she still there? And also in that time, I was pregnant with her, not knowing if she was going to make it. And I went to this funeral of a little boy who drowned in a freak accident. And there was a that light bulb moment of life is way too short to not do what you love. Um, and so I started my own business. I, I became an executive coach and then very quickly uh, Inkling morphed into running women's leadership programs. And we were just at the right time, right place. And it took off and went nuts. And we were suddenly with Google in Silicon Valley and PayPal in Singapore um, and then did that for eight years and loved it. And then it was time to pivot again because it had become a medium sized business and it had processes. And I was like the naughty founder, like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so I realized I'm really here to, to keep changing and keep pivoting. And it took a lot of courage to leave something that was working really well but it wasn't lighting me up anymore. So I moved from that and at the same time ended a marriage and everything changed. Um, and at that point I went onto the speaker circuit and I became known for speaking about courage and change and having the courage to change. And then also working with organizations to facilitate courage and change and connection within their workplaces. Mm. Wow. It's, it's so interesting. Cause I, I think you've, You've got a very similar trajectory to me, starting in the arts, into music, going into psychology, landing in organisational psychology, and and then uh, and then launching out as a founder and going into business yourself. All of those things require significant amounts of change. Uh, if if Phil can make this about him, he will. So I'm just letting you know, Gemma. So look, this is this this, this is Phil. Did, did we years. did we not clear that up earlier? That's okay. Uh, Gem, fair I've okay. never met someone who's gone through that exact same trajectory. It's like we're lost soul siblings. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Gosh. And anyway, the question is more uh, in relation to the last part um, in terms of the business, which I think um, uh, I think is really interesting because I know that a lot of what you've talked about is and, and connected with a lot of your clients is around this issue of female leadership and how do you develop female leadership and things like that. And as a female leader and founder yourself and being on the sort of the psychology side of it, so the outside looking in and on the inside looking out in both ways, do you find, A, that the conversation around um, female leadership has changed in the last 10 years and what what is that change? And B, I'm really interested to know from your perspective, is it is it helpful or unhelpful? Hmm. Oh, excellent questions the conversation has absolutely changed 
to the point where it's almost, people are still doing it, but it's almost seen as a little politically incorrect to run women's leadership programs now. And I actually do understand why. So the conversation has either, well, I think two things are happening. Either um, it's just being ignored and the conversation has moved to diversity and inclusion and belonging, all incredibly important subjects. Or, and this is where I think there's room to have more conversation, we're talking more about different styles of leadership and the the more, we don't might not even use these words, but the more feminine characteristics of, of leadership, including sustainable decision-making, including connection and collaboration and empathy and intuition, they are now the traits from leaders that followers want. And so I feel like the, the shift is actually we are moving, if you want to call it this, we're moving to a more feminine style of leadership because the people that are following are actually demanding it of us. So that's my answer to uh, question one. In terms of question two, can you just remind me what it was, Phil? Well, I'm wondering if the changing nature of the conversation is actually helpful or not. <laughs> Yes and no. So yes, for all the reasons I've, I've outlined, what I think I, I, having run multiple leadership programs with uh, a group of participants who all identify as women versus mixed gender participants, there is something about getting women in a room. And this is just how we have been raised. So it's not a judgment against people who don't identify as women, but there is something about getting women in a room results skyrocket if you actually look at where they were at the start of the program versus where they are at the end there is a much bigger shift in all women programs than in mixed gender programs and i think there is that it's because there's that safe space created but i also think there is a more feminine style of rocking up to things like this which is to say do you know what i am struggling here i really need help here there's that vulnerability and authenticity that sets you up from the get-go to achieve outstanding results because you're not trying to cover it up with ego. It's just, here's who I am. Here's where I need to be. Please help. Mm. That's really interesting because I think it's you hear a similar type of argument for single-sex schools, particularly girls' schools, where girls, uh, you know, yeah, and that's it's a very, it's been a, a long-stay argument for um, girls' schools being single-sex for the reason that they tend to perform better and learn better in that that environment. Yeah. Um, many guys also understand, you know, uh, we, we've had many, I know this is going to sound like a really weird, you know, parallel, but, you know, you bring guys along to a poker night or some sort of night and they are extremely authentic and open and you see as soon as you bring one female into that environment, it just changes the dynamic, right? Yeah. So it, 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 the, the interesting thing about that is then, does that seem to suggest that there is time and place for diversity and inclusion and a time and place for segregation? I wish I had the expertise to give that a clear answer. <laughs> I just I was don't. hoping that you could. <laughs> I, I know. I feel like it's so multifaceted. And I've although I I, I do um keynotes and masterclasses and programs on collect connection and belonging, for me, one of even though I love working with women, um and I'm about to launch something very exciting that that has a, a focus on that. Um, for me, I actually saw more and more men 
come up and say, I want, I want this too. And I, I actually think it's about moving humanity to a, a, a wild new way of working because what we're doing now isn't working. A wild new way of working, a wild new way of leading. Mm. The way in which we're approaching work, that the hustle and the force and the exhaustion and the overwhelm and the stress, mm. more and more there's permission for not just women but men to put their hands up and go, this isn't working mm-hmm. for me. And I, I think having gone through COVID and having seen that there is a way to do it differently, mm-hmm. people are now demanding, rightfully so, more and more, I don't want to go back to this old way anymore. Mm, I think it's interesting to see, a, I think, a really positive shift in the conversation to be moving from extrinsic diversity, so of those things that are group associations essentially, um, <laughs> to to cognitive diversity. Um, and this this increasing uh, uh, research around actually the benefits of diversity sits within the cognitive diversity and where you uh, change extrinsic diversity, you've got a higher chance of getting cognitive diversity, but it's not the, the be all and the end all. So you can get uh, a room full of uh, 50-50 male and females and different cultures and almost have a non-diverse cognitively group at the moment which then won't work for you i was wondering if you could could you pull that apart from your perspective a little bit in terms of what that means from your experience yeah i think it's an incredibly well-made point because what when you're focusing on extrinsic diversity and creating a space where different groups feel that that they can belong and contribute you're essentially helping people to feel space to be exactly who they are and that that actually shouldn't be based on because it's it's almost saying okay so we're going to help women be women and that's it's not about that to me uh, any workplace and team um, where people feel that they can flourish as they are that they don't have to become square pegs to fit into round holes that's a workplace or team that's going to be innovative and creative and think outside what has been done before. And that's incredibly necessary right now because there is a need for huge transformation in how we get things done. And the more that people can, as you say, play to their cognitive diversity, but also their diversity of strengths Mm -hmm. and their diversity of what it is that lights them up, what it is they want to work on if you've got a room where everyone feels that they can be who they are then all sorts of magic gets unlocked Mm. how 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 does that work from your side like when when you're advising leaders Gemma, from the perspective of and this is something that sort of comes back to what i spend most of my day doing in terms of advising companies they say there's two types of questions that can be asked at a strategic level one's a transactional question which is generally are based around transactions of data between the client and the coach. So it it helps the coach, like somebody like yourself, to discover more about the client, but it actually doesn't help the client move forward. Whereas they talk about transformational questions are the ones that help the client transform. How, how, well, what's the mindset primarily that, that you would have seen that's actually necessary to become a successful transformational leader? It is a multi-pronged fork, one of which is absolutely empathy and the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Another, and I don't think this is talked about often enough, another is intuition. That ability to uh, create a space of quiet and peace so 
the right question almost comes to you. You're not going through this list. Uh, you're actually going, okay, here's, here's how I nudge. Here's the right question to unlock. There's the, the need, I think, and again, this isn't talked about enough because I think people think we need to go into business or leadership or entrepreneurship and become hard-nosed. But actually, to me, it's about being open-hearted. You, you cannot help people to transform if you actually um, can't evoke emotion and feel emotion and feel with them. And then the final major prong, I think, is that ability to hold space and sit with those uncomfortable emotions that come up. We're not taught how to do this. We're not taught how to connect to other human beings. Uh, and when we have that ability to sit with things and allow people to sit in those uncomfortable emotions, sometimes that's enough to create those um, avenues for them to decide that they're ready to transform. How, how does that work in terms of advising a leader, Gemma, in the sense that do you spend the time uncovering the blind spots that that leader has or do you emphasise more the strengths that they um, actually have as a leader more to actually make them better in those areas or is it a scenario of becoming a well-rounded leader as a whole? I, I personally don't believe in well-roundedness as the be-all and end-all. Um, one of my favourite quotes comes from Danielle Laporte, who says that well-roundedness is overrated. You're always going to be too much of something for someone. And I think that is absolutely true. Um, having said that, though, I do think there are particular skills that if you don't have them, they need to be become part of your repertoire. But the advice I've always been given and I always give is that if there is a gap or a weakness, you just become better at, at it enough so it's no longer a liability for you and then you focus on your strengths. Because I do think that I, I know for me in my career when I made that unapologetic decision to firstly understand my strengths and then play to them almost relentlessly. That's when my career went, and here we are. <laughs> That's when everything kind of started to land, um, both for me in terms of my confidence, but also the opportunities started to really come in. And I think we have been taught to, uh, and, and also we have that negativity and bias in the brain that says, let's focus on what you're not good at and let's become world-class in that area, that's never going to happen. Whereas if you take what you are great at and focus on that, you do, not just you can become world-class, but you do become world-class. Obviously what you're talking about there a lot is emotional intelligence and that the, mm -hmm. the, the emotional, the increasing of emotional intelligence is becoming increasingly important in differentiating good uh, leadership and successful companies. Um, and for those of you who know me, uh, my entire business is, is teaching, is, is creating platforms for emotional intelligence building within school students and things like that. So that within the schools, which is a, is a part of my, my big passion play. Mm. I suppose what I'm interested to know is for you personally, you obviously mentioned before that, that you went through some big changes and, uh, one of those big changes was a breakdown of your primary relationship, um, and some 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 significant grief goes into those sorts of big changes, right? Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I imagine that that was around the same time that you were starting up a business and starting to look at risk in 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 ways that you'd never had, was able to look at risk before. 
that's a very soul searching time like you you basically strip yourself bare uh, and continue you know and 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 feel a sense of uh, uncomfortable authenticity to the to the rest of the world in those moments um what was it that you learned through that experience that you've then been able to apply to make you better at business and at life Mm, it, you're right it was a very uncomfortable experience and I think one of the things I learned is that when you do hit that place of rock bottom or deep fear I, I still remember when when Abigail you know th- those 20 weeks when we didn't know if she would be with us it was like there was this this sense of comfort within the bleakness and I, I think what I learned in that in that experience is that, and I did feel like I, w- I was tossed upside down and everything was flung out of my pockets and everything I knew I didn't know anymore. And what I learned was that void where you're going, who am I, what am I here for? And everything that's familiar has been taken away. That void is purposeful. And from that void, you've got the space to listen to the small, still whispers that tell you what's next. And I think I've I've learnt over and over again to trust that small, still voice, even if what it's saying to me makes me shit scared, (laughs) even if what it's saying to me from a cultural perspective looks like the very opposite of common sense. Mm. I know that every time I've created that space to feel um empty and uncomfortable i've always been shown what's next Mm. and i think what i've learned from that is firstly how to listen to that small still voice and secondly how to teach that process to others because we we live in this culture where it's like life hacks for this and here's the three steps for this and here's the formula for that And actually the big missing piece is how do you tune into your own small, still voice that's always telling you what's next, what's next, what's next. So, so put us in the hot seat. Ab and I are terrible at listening to our still small voice. How how would you do that to us? To Well, I I wouldn't do it to you. For us, us, I should say. I would get you to do it for yourself. Yeah, that's right. Perfect. Um, I would firstly ask you to get into alpha brainwaves. So I would lead you through a breathing exercise where it's just simple box breathing. It's mm-hmm. in for four, hold for four, out for four, do a few rounds of that. I would then ask you, and you would have closed your eyes during this, I would then ask you to open your eyes with a soft gaze because when you're actually when you've got blurred vision as opposed to that manic narrow down what's wrong beta brainwaves vision when you blur your vision you actually help move to the right brain which is where alpha brainwaves are located and from that point creativity and intuition and curiosity are enabled and i would also suggest doing some things long term that help you regularly get into that place and i know for me music is very beneficial so um, there might be if you can think about it there might be some pieces of music where you just put them on and you go and you're immediately at peace same with looking at a sunset or sunrise or a forest walk nature brings us back to peace feet on the earth brings us back to peace and heads us into alpha um meditation even if it's five minutes a day and the final (laughs) final thing which is weird but apparently one and a half cups of coffee 
and then working on an activity that you that makes you feel creative and that you're excited to work on that gets you into alpha um and once you've got that 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 space i would then i would then pose some really open questions at you questions like what would you do if you weren't afraid uh and if you knew that everything you touched would work out what would that free you up to dream so once you're in alpha, you pose those big blue sky questions and your brain doesn't go, but I've got to pay the mortgage. And, you know, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to look after my aging parents. Your brain goes, ooh, and it opens up to that right amygdala whose immediate response to something isn't holy shit. It's actually oh, this curious, oh, what could we do with this? Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah. Adam, now now I can call you an alpha male and it will mean very, very different uh, very things different. to what I usually say. About That's you. right. I'll, so I'll call you beta. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm actually in the right part of the brain, which is good. Yeah. So that works. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm interested to know, Gemma, obviously your career has taken you in front of some of the biggest companies, Google, Vodafone, Amazon. Is is it the same discussion that you're having with these leaders? Because they're 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 hugely dynamic in a lot of cases in terms of not only the management of the workload, but also what's going to keep us innovative, what's going to keep us fresh, what's going to keep us at the cutting edge with our customers. Like, is, is it the same type of discussion you're having in terms of mobilizing these these uh, these business leaders to be better at what they do, or is it more of a scenario to say, hey, you've got to get the balance right? in order to actually become uh, better at what you do? It, I would, it's both. And, and to me, one of the um, the things that distinguishes someone who just goes and delivers keynotes as opposed to someone who facilitates transformation is that ability to be present and to read the room and to actually answer what is needed for that group. So it really does. I, I'm, I'm not a, the kind of person who goes and delivers the exact same keynote every time. I try my best to to give the nudges and the kicks up the bum that are needed. Um, having said that, uh, my that that lizard brain in me, <clears throat> even though I teach how to overcome that for a living, every time I go to do a big keynote, I still remember sitting in the in the bathrooms at Google, going, "I'm talking to Google people, like they're going to know all this shit." And of course, yeah. they're like, "Oh, thank gosh." They, where everyone is human dealing with the same human issues and complications that arise just from living our lives and just from living our lives in this time and place that is incredibly complicated and complex and full of change and uncertainty. Mm. Yeah. No, I'm I'm going to change tact now in the, the interview, Gemma, if that's okay, because we're, we're, we're in some pretty deep discussions here but look i want to take all of our listeners back to before Gemma was solving leadership problems for some of the biggest leaders in the world to uh her singing career um <laughs> and i know this must come up from time to time uh i'd say in terms of singing outside of singing in the shower in the unit and uh every now and again sort of going on stage to uh backfill a singer for university uh bands that i was part of many many years ago your story is a lot better than that you uh, you emphasise the fact that you've been a backup singer for the Rolling Stones, and I've got to know more about that. Being a huge Rolling Stones fan myself, and how that even came about. <laughs> uh, it came about through a phone call. Like literally, I uh, it was the middle of a day. I think it was a nondescript Tuesday. 
And I was called by someone who I used to sing with for many years and actually still do. I'm I'm singing with him again now, but uh, his name's Carl Crossan and he has been voted world's best choir conductor many years in a row. Um, But I was in the National Youth Choir of Australia uh, and I toured New Zealand with him and I toured Europe with him. And he is a massive Stones fan. Like this is a guy who listens to uh, Vivaldi and Monteverdi and and the Stones. <laughs> and when he heard they were coming to Australia, he just went, hang on a minute, they often have a choir and I'm the person to bring this group together. So he pitched to them, they said yes, and then that led to the phone call. And before I knew it, we were up on stage, 53,000 people, everyone crapping their dacks, but also having an awesome time. Wow. How long ago was that, Gemma? Oh, gosh, I'm not great with dates. I think it was probably seven years ago now. Wow. So he was, Mick Jagger was probably 90 years old then. So, <laughs> right. so and it, rocking out like a 24-year-old. I've never seen someone with so much energy and not an ounce of fat on him. It's just, it was, and we were sitting with their 23-year-old girlfriend. It was just. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Some people just just have it, right? He's just, <laughs> he's just got it and always just, had it. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, have you got a similar story to sort of, you know, sort of go up against the Rolling Stones? This, or, this, is, uh... this is not about me, mate. This is not about me, remember. This is... This is... Uh, I love how you use that very, very um, strategically, Phil. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. No, no, I mean, I do think you, you, you learn a lot. You know, there's something about being able to... You know, I always say to people, it was, and they they don't believe this. It's it was much harder for me to to play and perform in front of a crowd of a hundred people than it was a hundred thousand people because it's just it's a massive, it's a sea of of uh, faceless and it's big and it's exciting, but nothing more, nothing quite as scary as getting up there in front of a hundred people that you know who are going to be able to remind you for the rest of your life if it's crap. So, um, yeah, that, that was my experience. Oh, and I would much rather, and it's the same with speaking now. Like my fiance said the other day, I've got a, a, a couple of new keynotes. He said, do you want me, do you want to practice them in front of me? I was like, not on no. your nilly. Like that's just terrifying, yeah, but get me up in front of a thousand people. Easy peasy. Yeah, absolutely. One, one of the most memorable um, times I've ever sung, I, I had uh, a family member um, pass away and his mother, um, beg your pardon, his daughter led me into the room and in, with the corpse and said, can you sing P.A. And it was just five people and a recently passed body. And that, it wasn't terrifying, but it was, you. it was important. And, you know, the other gigs with huge amounts of people, they're fun. And yes, they, they can spark entertainment and even transformation, but that, that moment was really quite profound. Mm-hmm. What have you been able to, to take in from those times of when you were doing sort of more music and, and non-business related things? What do you think? What do you think you've learnt in those mm-hmm. experiences that have given you an edge in your current life? It's so interesting, Phil, because I hadn't thought about that ever. I I, I do tend to go from one thing to the next, and. Someone asked me about it a year ago. I just went, ah, right. Actually, it has been really helpful. Mm. And it was so useful to think about it because what I think I, I learned when I finally took the time to reflect, and you might feel this too, 
is that when, you know, I've been singing and performing since the age of six and I have been very well versed in taking the audience on a journey and actually speaking to their hearts and minds and Mm. Um, and entertaining and engaging mm. from the stage and knowing how to shape an event so it takes people on all to all sorts of places. And I think in the business world, that is really bereft. And mm. I go to all these conferences that are, and I'm I'm so jack of it, I have to say, mm. that are beige and boring and it's death by PowerPoint given by people with dead eyes and mm. closed hearts. And it's like... This is not, it, it's, it could be a, a conference on engagement and everyone's sitting there on their phones. So I think mm. there is something about having been in music, which is all about awakening hearts and minds, mm. being able to bring that to the to the speaking circuit and to my work with corporate clients, I think mm. it actually has made a difference. Mm, I think it's a great quote from Bono that says he doesn't see himself as the lead singer of a band but head of marketing. Um, because it's up it's up to him in that moment to connect with the people that are in the audience, you know, and he sort of sees he's not singing his songs, he's relaying your memories of those songs and things like that. Yeah. And those sorts of those sorts of emotional connections and looking at that connectedness and even having the sensitivity, you learn the sensitivity of when you lose the connectedness, you know, and you've gone, I've lost the room all of a sudden. And other people wouldn't even see that, but but you've got this intuition which can tell because you've had some pretty immediate feedback in the past, right? <laughs> that is such a good point. And again, I hadn't thought of that before. And I think I, I'm a, a nerdy classical ensemble singer. You know, I'm, I'm not, I know it's very cool that I've sung with the Rolling Stones, but I'm nowhere near cool. But there was also something about singing in an ensemble where you become so highly tuned to what was going on around you mm. and to reading the room and actually then fitting into that as opposed to here I am and mm. you're just going to take me as I am. I, I do think to create transformation in people, you need to meet them at their level. And then as you say, connect with them as humans. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's constantly fascinating how we we take the lessons that we learn in life and, and apply it without even thinking. And other people look at it as if it's some sort of superpower and, <laughs> and we just think mm -hmm. it's it's just what we do. What, how how can I not do that? Like it's 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 it would just seem impossible. That's it. Uh, and I also think that is such a key indicator of what your strengths are when it comes mm -hmm. so easily to you that others will comment on it. You're like, well, everyone can do that. Mm -hmm. No, they can't. No, they can't. Yeah, yeah. And it's even interesting, I think, you know, being in what I would call the glamour industries, particularly when when we've grown up in that. Now, I think the band and media industries of the 90s, uh, where they're, where people are trading off the glamour of wanting to be a rock star or wanting to be a, a, a you know, a, a insert a great photographer or great dancer or whatever it is. Uh, and they say, we can help you. And so you become the industry. You become the target of their business model, not the outcome. And they use the outcome as a way to engage you as a target of their business model. Mm -hmm. It's been really interesting to sort of see the, the the glamour of the startup industry that's happened in the last 20 years, which mm -hmm. is almost a cookie cutter of the, the the glamour industries of the arts of the 90s in small business of the, of the, the 2010s and 20s, you know. I don't yeah. know if that's been your experience. Oh, absolutely. I could say so much about the startup culture. Um, I was lucky enough um, to go on the KPMG Elevate program, Elevate 61 mm -hmm. program that takes Australian businesses and teaches you to pitch to the US. And I, <laughs> 
the the glamour industry of the startup it, it behind the scenes i actually still remember an australian founder saying oh american investors love australian founders because we're willing to push shit uphill and i just went no that that it it looks like this glamorous place where you get to create and innovate and in some ways it is because there is the freedom to do that but there is also tremendous pressure there's also as i was saying to to adam earlier 70 flights a year and exhaustion i had adrenal fatigue multiple times mm. it is pushing this masculine hustle sell before anything way of working where the message is everything and not, there's not necessarily substance behind that mm. and to me life is here for us to be true versions of ourselves contributing in the way we're meant to startups can do that but i think there's a lot of hype and not necessarily much of substance behind some of the startups i've seen mm. what would you like to see change in that space because starting up a business is not easy and yeah. neither neither should it be easy you know there's the the 10 year overnight success is very very mm-hmm. real when you're living through it um and uh and and having to re- create the mental resilience and fortitude to be able to push through when every five of you are being is saying give up go and do something easier this is not working and your relationships start to fray and and emotional intelligence really obviously comes into play in that time but what so there's an element i suppose in what i'm saying is it's not about making everything easy because things are hard and 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 you there is something about going through that uh, that that hard experience, which actually I think probably sets you up better for success. Yes. However, there's probably a little bit that that, as you said, it's it's the hustle culture, and there's probably many many aspects of the culture which are unnecessarily adding to that pain in ways where um, it probably tips over from harden up and 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 be more resilient to actually this becomes a little bit psychologically abusive in a way mm-hmm. of, of the people within the system itself. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of trying to, in a roundabout, go where's that line between, yeah. you know, doing it tough because that's just part of the process and new business is tough and, and harden up and actually now we've pushed it too far. It's, it's a very well-made point. I completely agree that the struggles and the challenges they're they're grist for the mill they're they're actually they 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 help polish off the 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 rough edges Mm. um and help make us brilliant i think i'd want to see a few things changed one is that the motivation for starting a business comes from a place of the pure intent to serve Mm. and also that pure joy of doing what it is that lights you up and if you can combine those two things i think there is a lot of magic that's released from that and i do think the way of going through the process yes there are challenges but i do think it's kind of made a little easier for you because you've got that joy in what you're doing and because you you've got this Um, dream of making the world better place that's pulling you out of bed in the morning as opposed to having to push yourself so that the motivation for doing things i'd want to see um different i I would want to see the struggle less glorified Mm. because it's almost like ah it's hard and this is how it needs to be and i'm just my gosh i haven't slept for this long and (laughs) and i'm so busy and it's seen as this badge of honor and that's like we talked about before you need that 
that um, quiet space and you need there's this fabulous quote that I think it's from Martha Beck. She says, you will always get what you want, but the universe only delivers to your home address and your home address is peace. <laughs> yeah. And we've got this startup culture that glorifies the exact opposite of peace. And I don't think that works for anyone. Mm-hmm. And also it discourages the next generation of founders mm-hmm. from going, ah, oh, I see a place for me there. That's actually, that looks doable. That looks mm-hmm. fun. That looks achievable. So, yeah, I, I would want to see the struggle glorified less. And the final thing is I'd want people to use their intuition more rather than their fear-based mind and, and that let's do this and let's do that. I, I want to for people to take time to feel into, well, what's the right step? And the next right step, rather than trying to have this 12.5 year business plan from the get-go, I don't think that's how success mm. happens. Mm. I think it, that harks back to one of their very first guests, uh, Mike Duggan, who's an ultra marathon runner and a very successful businessman in his own right uh, here in in, uh, in Brisbane. And mm. uh, he had this great saying that I love, that I've picked up and uh, and used time and time again, and and I know Mike quite well. But he says, yeah, even as an ultra marathon runner doing, you know, 150, 300 kilometer runs, it's okay to walk. It's okay to walk. And I think that's something that entrepreneurs never hear because if it's not going at a cracking pace or if you're mm. judging yourself based on what ha- what else happens with other people, you think if you walk, you're being lazy. If you walk, it's not going, not going forwards, going backwards. And maybe there's an element of the truth to that, but that sense of peace that comes from it's okay to walk. It's okay to walk oh. right now. There'll be a time to sprint. There'll be a time to run. And knowing yeah. when to sprint and when to walk gets you through the ultra marathon. I completely agree. And also, and he wouldn't say this because I don't think you can do this in an ultra marathon, but also knowing when to stop mm. and knowing when to change course. I think mm. that is equally important mm. as just keeping on going. And, you know, having been raised um, in the work world as, as a management consultant where my hours and utilization were measured to an inch of their lives, I learned to work very quickly, but I also learned that horrible guilt. I, I still remember I'd, I'd got up and, and I'd been working, you know, 18 hour days for, for weeks. And at three o'clock I went, I'm tired. I'm going to go home and take my dog for a walk. I was in my twenties, late twenties at this stage, but I still remember looking around going, what if they see me? Like I'm, I'm taking my dog for a walk, mm-hmm. but I, I, people say all the time to me, Oh, I'm so sorry. You must be so busy. And I've got such pride in saying, not really. Mm. Like I, I've designed my life and my work so that I can tune into what's needed at any given point in time. And I think that's how we're meant to operate. And my best idea for the business last year came when I took a walk at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday just because I felt like it. Mm-hmm. That's probably a good segue for a question I have, Gemma. You, you're obviously through the Inkling group, you're, you're exposed to a lot of new female leaders coming in and running companies. You've spoken to a lot of different uh, organisations here in Australia and around the world. With that balance that you've now brought into your life in terms of managing work and managing your life and knowing when to stop, to pause, to take a break, Mm. who is it now that actually inspires you? Mm. 
Um, funnily enough, it's the artists of the world. <laughs> Thank that you. Run one for the artists. Here we go. <laughs> it's it's true. I was I was binging on Lin Manuel Miranda content yesterday <laughs> and listening to some podcasts and his interview with Lee Sales. I think mm. Tim Minchin is incredible. Mm. Um, I think Claire Bowditch. I read her book and I listened to a podcast with her. This is how much I. I'm inspired by artists. Um, apparently she drank this combination of English breakfast and Earl Grey tea when writing her book and I'm writing a book at present. So of course, every morning I'm up making my Claire Bowditch tea. Um, but to me, it's, it's the people who are, who seem to be producing prolific content, but actually what they're doing is honoring their creative process. Mm. And that looks like a whole lot of peace and a whole lot of joy. Um, and a whole lot of knowing what season is the right time for what. And then getting back to the work and getting back to the next right thing that's in front of them and putting everything they have into that. That's how I at least aim to live my life. Mm. So the next obvious question is tick, tick, boom or Hamilton? <laughs> um, oh, I like them both. Hamilton has <laughs> earworms that get stuck in my head, though. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we 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 just opened our show next door to Hamilton, so we've been oh, for, for about did. about three weeks, which has been fun uh, <laughs> at their expense, I must say. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, um, that's a whole other story. Um, diverging back into into the world of of psychology and business, um, just because um, you know that's that's playing on our strengths let's let's go there um but i'm i'm also really interested to know what you think about political correctness i i, I think it's a really interesting topic that we as psychologists avoid like the plague we we don't like talking about it and you you're more than welcome to put up the please edit this out sign uh if you need be but i find it endlessly fascinating to be to to be talking to people about the importance of talking about competing ideas in a non-emotional way whilst at the same time not uh letting the biases of our of ourselves come out in and prejudice people in in malformed malformed ways but how to do that in a way that um doesn't in of itself become an ideology that becomes dogmatic and closes yourself off from new things as well i'm interested to know from your perspective how do you draw that line between what's draw the line between having a decent uh, wholehearted rounded conversation of divergent ideas that need to clash in order to order for new ideas and better ideas to come about mm -hmm. and 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 this sort of slightly um idea around uh a homogenous of what's acceptable and not that seems to be encroaching uh, and Stephen Fry does this a lot better than I do uh, on the suppression of some ideas to the extent that you can talk about things and debate things as long as it falls within the confines of what's acceptable to talk about yeah. and what's not acceptable how do you how do you find that space Oh, with difficulty, uh, it is, it's a very, in some ways, it's a very narrow path to try to walk, but I also think there are some general principles that can really help. Um, I heard Glennon Doyle share that actually if, if an opinion is raised that you have a reaction of, oh, are we going to allow that? To actually ask 
questions about it and to ask them to repeat it back. And sometimes even in just opening that up and and getting people to repeat um, what they've just said, they go, oh, hang on a minute. Mm. The other thing I've learned is from my friend Mia Hanchen, who is very good at holding space and just being able to completely non-judgmentally say, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. Mm. And I do think we live in this culture where it's it's this, well, my idea is this and my idea is this. And when you actually hold that space for genuine listening, you can have conversations where there are disparate points of view and perhaps you're bordering on politically incorrect but you allow those things and then ask questions as opposed to judge and disallow what's being said. Mm -hmm. For myself, I think what you're trying to say is that you need to flip the urge to be right more than influential and learn to be influential rather than have to be right. And I think that's a, that's a real key skill. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Oh, you said it so much better than than I did, Phil. I, I think curiosity trumps that need to be right. Mm. It's tricky. I'm about to work with a group and running a session on the courage to connect. Mm. And I know one of the issues they're having is that there is such diversity in there, but they've got this monotone culture that I would call sarcastic heckling humor. It's like, ah, he's not that. And, you know, just being insulting, etc. And they might, in response to what I'm going to say, they might say, well, hang on, I'm just being myself. But the other thing we need to think about if we're part of the dominant culture is, is this actually me? Or am I just part of this is how we've always done conversations? So I think mm-hmm. turning that towards us as well is just as important as illuminating other points of view. Mm, yeah, nice. Make sure that we're not part of the shoot first, ask questions later culture that that does tend to exist. Although I do think it's changing a little bit. I, I don't think it's quite as bad. Uh, and I could just have my head in the sand or, or be be speak in my own echo chamber. But I, I do get the sense that it's that it's shifting slightly. That it, that it's being a little bit less reactive. But we'll see. I, I, I think so too. There's more room for openness and vulnerability now than there was two, three years ago, for sure. Mm. Because I think I think it's it's so interesting to see people when they aren't able to be authentic and honest, or they don't feel safe to be, because their own views might be absconded. End up they end up just going into their own echo chambers, and then they finally find somebody that does resonate with them, and then they feel like that that becomes their source of truth or honesty, and no one no one benefits uh, when yeah, that happens. It's so, the dinner party, and I've had these where everyone's going yes, and oh, I couldn't more and no one's actually putting in any dissenting opinions <laughs> which is kind of nice but it, it's not particularly opening in terms of looking at different ways of seeing the world yeah I, I I'm I'm not that person unfortunately I'm always the one that and and my poor wife always ends up going oh here we go again you know it doesn't do you do you really have I said, well that's the interesting bit i was just getting to the fun bit you know we weren't having an argument we're having a discussion uh, you know here we go again Gemma. Honestly. Yeah, there we go okay now look i'm, I'm interested sort of we, we've covered a lot of ground today you know the good the bad uh the not so good of everything that you've seen in leaders uh society political correctness but what advice are you giving to your kids now you've got three children Gemma. Uh, um, yes, is that correct? we've got a blended tribe. So I've Blend, got blended tribe. My fiance's got one. So every night you're coming home after talking with these these heavy hitters, these big leaders, um, getting a sense of what's right and wrong in the world. 
What, what, what are some of the traits that you're trying to really drive uh, within within your children who are uh, the next generation of leaders coming into uh, into society? Yeah, what a great question. I am trying and not always succeeding in getting them to navigate that voice in their brain that will always want to keep them small and hidden and realize that's just a tiny part of their brain. And actually, if you can just, just, you know, soothe that part of your brain and tune into that, that, that kind of voice, that more peaceful voice, it's going to lead you in the right direction. I'm trying to give them as much room as they want to develop their creativity. Um, for me, they find a lot of room to be creative on screens as a 45 year old. I don't quite get it, but they assure me they're being creative. So I'm trying not to judge that. And I'm trying, and again, they're teens and preteens. So, you know, the success rate is probably about 12.5%, but I'm, I'm trying to get them to be interested in other people um, and to be genuinely curious about how other people tick and to look at what it is that makes them tick um, and to be aware that they've got something very special to bring to the world and they're here to make the world a better place in a way that lights them up and to follow the clues that mm. set them on that path. Mm. And, well, you know, you've only got a limited amount of influence for a limited amount of time. So, uh, you know, good luck, good luck with that. <laughs> I, I have two 20-something boys and it constantly surprises me they're, that they're as successful and well-adjusted as they are. <laughs> Um, I thought, well, yeah, they must have a good mother or, or something like that. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just sometimes, uh, you know, there's you, there's your partner and then there's life and life tends to have a bigger influence, right? Yeah, anyway. and, and their peer groups and their strengths and mm. you're right, there, there is a limited influence you can have. I think the, the biggest thing I have learned and I, I've learned this from watching people try to drop everything to be the best parents they can be is sometimes just getting on with the life that you're meant to live is the best example for them, showing them the courage to actually make the decisions that are, are right for you and that light you up. That is just as much um, mm. a parenting action as having the conversations about how to be in the world. Mm. Gemma, really small question, but yeah. what do you think is the one idea that's going to change the world? What came to me is that, you have the answers inside of you. Stop looking outside for them. Mm -hmm. Just tune in and follow. Nice. I don't think we can beat that, Phil. Gemma, thank you for talking to Phil and I today. Um, the empathy, the patience that you have uh, in your work and also just everything that you do, it really comes through. Uh, I've really been inspired by the chat today just in terms of sort of the way that you the lens you look through in terms of uh, life and leadership and being able to tie the two together for a successful business and family life is uh, is inspiring. So uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation today and I'm happy to hear that it was actually a, an interview with you, Gemma versus Phil. Um, and we really, really, uh, we've really enjoyed the time today. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Turnaround Mindset podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please head over to iTunes, Google or Spotify, hit subscribe and share the podcast with someone you think would benefit from it. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating. To download this episode and access other relevant content, please visit our website, www.theturnaroundmindset.com.
thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. Join us next week for another Turnaround Mindset episode. And remember, the only way it gets better for you is when you get better.